This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by David Dualde, political director of Our Revolution. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, uh, Jordan. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. Thank you. David, with Democrats applauding Donald Trump when he said America will never be a socialist country during the State of the Union and the 2020 race heating up, what is happening with the revolution? Well, the revolution is alive and well in the United States, at least in ways that have never been so in my life. Um, I think even just looking at the word revolution is part of my organization's, our revolution's uh, name. And I think and it's kind of symbolic not only of the Sanders movement itself, but that people really are looking for transformative politics uh, in ways that have you know, are shaking the status quo and not really existed in decades. And unfortunately, you know, I think your allusion to President Trump is one brings up that some of this these transformative politics aren't necessarily good. They can be the rise of fascism and neo-fascistic elements, uh, which very much are aligned uh, with the president and his allies. But also, there's lots of promise uh, we see with the election of this new slate of progressive candidates and the fact that some of the main uh, candidates leading for 2020 not only are progressives and democratic socialists, potentially Bernie Sanders, if he puts his hat in, and Elizabeth Warren, who I would, you know, is much more of a social democrat, but that's still <laughs> far advanced, but also more importantly, the establishment candidates who are adopting their policies. And Lastly, I'll say today, I mean, it's just incredibly exciting to see how much attention the Green New Deal has generated, uh, which, uh, if promised, would really deliver not only economic change to society and really in a way that is revolutionary in terms of putting society above profits and putting people to work and putting our environment first, but the fact that it's like making news and it's people are talking about it as a possibility, not just a marginal idea. And so the revolution is well, but without <laughs> concerns of the, the, its opponents uh, still maintaining power and still having a chance to you know, stop it. So lots to cover there. Let's start with some basic terminology. How would you define democratic socialism versus social democracy? Uh, that's always a fantastic question, and one that I personally have grappled with uh, for much of my political uh, life. Um, I identified as a, a socialist uh, early in high school, about 20 years ago, um, and came from a leftist family. But I didn't really embrace the term democratic socialism because it was, wasn't a term that I knew. But I knew that I fundamentally wanted a society that uh, did put a value on things like civil rights, human rights, and dissent, and that I felt that ultimately, you know, and I found organizations that would fit this role, um, that a socialism that I desire, and I think that 
one that the people aligned uh, who are hold office shares that it's it's about democratizing the workplace. It's about giving greater expansion to unions and giving workers a greater say in the way their lives run and not allowing uh, tyranny of the employer to rule uh, them and to have greater uh, you know, cooperation, but also collaboration uh, throughout society. And so I feel that democratic socialism is a goal in which we are striving to achieve and is kind of, I view it very much as like an end post and a society in which, you know, we will have no classes and that there will be democratic control of, of, of life. Uh, but in the meantime, it's very critical that we do elements, legislation, social movements, uh, just changing the general view of what is possible. And that's moving towards social democracy, which is both a system, you know, which you can look at Scandinavia as a, examples, especially before uh, the, the millennium change that really had advanced social democratic welfare states in which people had guaranteed rights. And also social democracy is, is a goal in which also that is a set of value that where you see people putting class politics at the center of what they're doing and that a lot of even what people are proposing, which would have great ramifications uh, for racial justice and gender justice in society, ultimately center around putting a, uh, controls on capital. And so Medicare for all is a fantastic example of that, where you see a social democratic program. It's, and I can explain why it's not socialist if you're curious, but in taking away private insurers from the market, uh, primarily is a class struggle issue. It takes away the power of people to make profit off of people's illnesses. But uh, the problems also in our healthcare system aren't just about being able to pay. There are also are racial and gender disparities. And by creating a, a way where there's no private insurers who can discriminate, um, you can really attenuate uh, the racial and gender differences and, and you know, malicious practices that exist. So while Medicare for all is a social democratic issue that, you know, primarily works through taking power away from corporations, it also does have positive effects on racial and gender justice. And that's how kind of you can view social democracy in action moving towards a democratic socialist uh, society. And in regards to Medicare for All, we've seen some top Democrats, including Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, waffle on what exactly that means. They say that we can have Medicare for All and maintain the private insurance market. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, says that we need to eliminate the private market. What exactly does Medicare for All mean? Um, <laughs> that's a great uh, question, because in the end, one of the great drawbacks of American society is that people can find a term and then make it mean uh, what they want to mean. Unfortunately, for those trying to change the definition, uh, Medicare for All does mean something very specifically, and it means what Senator Sanders is talking about, which is not only is that people would be guaranteed health insurance throughout uh, society, no matter where they were born, no matter what job they have, no matter how old they are, they will be the only method to get health insurance um, for what is covered by Medicare for all. Um, I think that there are societies, you know, where you can get 
additional health insurance. For example, in Canada, it's important for people to know that, for example, dental coverage is not covered uh, under their single-payer system. The Sanders bill does include dental coverage, uh, but the Canadians have never um, included uh, the, the that kind of oral care in their single-payer system. So there are examples that other candidates are drawing from in the world, but I think it's, it is drawing from an unfit on economically unjust uh, situations as examples. And I, and I know that there are efforts you would want to keep uh, for that private companies would want to keep uh, some way for them to provide coverage, even if there is a way for people to buy into Medicare or everyone is covered at a base level. But ultimately what that does is it undermines the system where it creates tiering and it creates mean testing. And the only way for effectively for Medicare for all to work to be most effective for everyone is if everyone has to be part of the program and can't just opt out. Um, and that is what why Sanders' program is ultimately the one that is truly Medicare for all is a truly single-payer system. And one of the biggest centrist arguments against Medicare for all that we're seeing groups like CAP make is that most people are actually happy with their employment-based health care and would be freaked out by the prospect of losing it how do you respond to this? Um, naturally, any change would um, is always tough for a system, especially one in which people would feel that you know something they've earned or gained um, is being taken uh, from them. And I can understand that people would not necessarily, as much as I would love them to, be won over by the idea that. Um, well, now everyone will get health care, so it's okay. Um, I think that in the end, we have to demonstrate, and which I believe is true, that this it will be a better system for everyone, including the people who will be uh, no longer covered by their private insurance. This will be a much more comprehensive bill. Tons of private insurance, you know, don't, doesn't cover uh, lots of things or doesn't cover uh, elements fully, um, and that it ultimately ends up being somewhat fear-mongering to warn people about losing a system that ultimately they'll be better served under. And I think, so the burden is on the advocates of Medicare for All, such as myself, to prove, which I believe to be true, that people, everyone will be better served under Medicare for All, not just that it's a socially just thing to do because other people will now gain health care. I think that's the argument we have to make, the argument that I believe um, is the winning argument and is based in reality. But I th and so I push back on Cap's concerns because I think it just feeds into um, kind of a right-wing frame that people should hold on to something even if it's not actually the best thing for them because it's their market choice. And I think we need to be convincing people not only will society be better served, they, they as an individual be better served as well. In terms of process, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, impediment for Medicare for All or a Green New Deal is the Senate's self-imposed filibuster. Do you believe that we can pass major progressive legislation in our lifetimes if the filibuster stays in place? I do. I think that this is possible. Not that I would hope that we won't uh, work to eliminate the filibuster, which is actually something personally I remembered uh, progressives defending the filibuster uh, when I was in college, and I was one of the few people to kind of just say, you can count me out. I'm not actually interested in defending this filibuster. 
and I felt very vindicated uh, when Barack Obama came to power and saw how the filibuster was used against even moderately liberal legislation, such as the Affordable Care Act. Um, I think, in borrowing on that historical experience, I believe that progressive legislation and progressive policy is still very much possible in society. And one of the reasons why I respect Senator Sanders uh, is that, as our executive director, Dr. Gottney, wrote in Jacobin uh, this week, that he understands that this legislation will only happen if there are social movements on the ground pushing it. And I think that unlike the ACA, there'll be much more of an effort of labor, mass member organizations, and other progressive forces to really push for Medicare for All to pass. And we'll just assume that the politician or the president will just take care of it and we just have to like be supportive. I think there'll be much more of a like, hey, let's help you out, but we're not going to just settle for anything. So I think with that kind of public pressure and I think people using social movement tactics, I think there's you can overcome the filibuster. Am I, I'm not saying it's easy. I am certainly not saying it won't be um, a road without ups and downs, but I ultimately feel that there is hope and there is a pathway. However, do I support uh, filibuster reform? To, yeah, absolutely. And I would hope that we could. Uh, I don't see them as mutually exclusive uh, exercises uh, in progressive politics. And what exactly are these movement strategies and techniques that you're using and the progressive movement is using to hold politicians accountable and keep the pressure up? Um, I, those are great questions. I th- uh, so, for example, our revolution and National Nurses United are in this month going to be doing hundreds of barnstorms. Uh, which include building uh, events around the country for a week to talk about Medicare for All, to really do grassroots education. Because as we saw with the Affordable Care Act, um, the, the right wing essentially did what people would say is they went buckshot. They just said anything that was untrue and hoped that it would stick. Uh, and then eventually some things did stick. Um, and so we really want to, the key part is to build a grassroots that is educated that about the issue, that can understand it and defend it uh, and articulate it to their friends and neighbors who ultimately are the people most likely to influence uh, your, your political views and how you support. And by having a much more educated grassroots who are ready to mobilize um, around uh, Medicare for all, then we can have public pressure on, on politicians and elected officials to make sure that they are uh, doing uh, what they said they would do. And so this also involves like the push of like, hey, did you sign on? And getting people to re-sign up and really meeting with them and educating them and educating their staff. And the pull of like, if they start wavering, being like, where were you? You said this, like doing doing at grassroots actions, which can be sometimes just a, a sit-in or they can be, you know, just a walkthrough where you just talk to them. I mean, the level, the tactics vary, but it's making sure people know that they are being watched and they are being like, and their commitment is not just taken for granted. Um, it are the key things, but it really start, starts with educating activists to really do grassroots mobilization of their neighbors and peers. Um, and, and politicians will respond to that if they know and if they see and it's demonstrable. That their that their constituents you know care about this issue and would would, would they would lose support if they went away from Medicare for all. 
right? I don't think that was true with a lot of folks at the ACA because there was enough corporate pressure on them and not enough constituent pressure back. And what you said about the GOP's strategy with the ACA, saying whatever lies they could think of and seeing what sticks, I think it represents a battle of narratives. We've seen this battle come to a head recently with the discussion on taxation, billionaires at its roots, class warfare. How is the conversation being shifted right now? And what does it mean to keep pushing it forward? Well, I think when you see the conversation happening right now is that the frames of trickle-down economics, the idea that there is no alternative to quote Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher to the economic and social order, um, just don't hold true anymore. And uh, Fox News, you know, of all places, kind of uh, did a did a survey and saw that even their own viewers were very favorable of increased taxation on the super wealthy, much just chagrin of the news anchors uh, themselves. And I think that you can cite lots of reasons for this to happen, but ultimately it's that one, we're far away enough from the Cold War that certain, certain boogeymen don't work anymore, and if anything, backfire. So, you know, at the State of the Union, we saw uh, President Trump talk about socialism again and, you know, targeting Senator Sanders, targeting Representative Ocasio-Cortez. But I don't think he would be bringing that up if he didn't have and his speechwriters didn't have some fundamental worry that there are certain voters who might play into his economic populism that he could lose to a broader call for a better, you know, society. And his Council of Economic Advisors also put out, you know, an, a very poorly written and poorly researched attack on socialism a few weeks ago. Um, and so people are looking for these alternatives. And I feel that you're, what's happening is that people recognize that wealth is being incredibly concentrated and that it would not be the end of the world <laughs> for some of these super rich billionaires and oligarchs for them to lose significant portions of their wealth and have it redistributed because they'd actually still be doing incredibly better than everyone else. And that concentrated wealth is just not good for society. There's no way it's harder and harder for even the most conservative people to justify with why Bezos, the owner of Amazon and the Washington Post and numerous other things should have so much money. It's just he's not creating that wealth anymore. It's just a mechanism in which he's collecting it. And it's just, it's an exciting time and with a moment that we have to capture, but ultimately I can just see that we also have great messengers uh, who really can resonate and express ideas uh, in really good forms. And I think the two politicians I mentioned, you know, Sanders Sanders and Castro Cortez are very good at simplifying, you know, policy, whether it's like Medicare for all or the Green New Deal in ways that, um, ways that people uh, understand to be um, possible uh, and not using complex terminology or stuff that's alien uh, to them. And what do you think it means that Michael Bloomberg and Howard Schultz are going on to CNN national news to call Medicare for All and the Green New Deal unrealistic and un-American? I mean, it's exciting if you actually take a step back because, you know, these would not have been ideas that Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg would have even addressed a few years ago. They just wouldn't have been on the radar. And 
ultimately everyone's pl- doing their part. And I think what my role in society is to really push for social change. And, and from my worldview, that the role of billionaires is to push against <laughs> the, the social and economic justice that I want. Um, and I do also want to add that there's a certain value in them because no one actually trusts them outside of a few very odd uh, beltway uh, pundits that they're bellwethers for anything. If anything, I mean, who, if you are uninsured, would you really care or really put stock in what Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg, who are, you know, two billionaires who don't go through what you're going through, uh, think about getting you health insurance? I, don't, I, I think the odds are no. And I don't see them as, you know, being the same messengers that they would have been on issues even a few years ago. I just don't think that our society, you know, reifies and elevates the super wealthy like it used to. I think there are, of course, elements that do do that. I don't think Trump would have won if he wasn't, like, upheld by certain segments in in an aspirational way. But I just think in the end that what these billionaires are doing is actually not super productive for their own cause. There's, of course, ways that they can undermine it through funding disinformation campaigns. But in the end, if you just in that one snapshot, in the one moment you're talking about, it's actually very hopeful for me when I see people attacking uh, the ideas that I espouse, especially if they're coming from such a position uh, in which I wouldn't expect them to be supportive of any, and, and they don't serve as like actually something that I feel would really resonate with folks who might be swayed against my, you know, policy that I'm supporting, like Medicare for all. So it's it's very promising <laughs> opposition if you can do that. And obviously, both of those men are presidential contenders. How is what we're discussing right now, democratic socialism, manifesting in the 2020 election? Um, well, as I alluded to earlier, and I think it's just still worth repeating, um, you know, you saw Trump. Uh, bring up socialism um, in his State of the Union. Um, he has um, he has he has a campaign to start thinking about, and I, and often it's not really talked about too much. But uh, Donald Trump really did not focus much energy on uh, Bernie Sanders when he was running for president. And I mean, there's probably many reasons for that. I think one. It would be that he didn't think that Bernie Sanders in particular will likely to be his opponent. But I do think that, and, and I think polls do show that there were, especially in some primary ways, uh, there were people who were considering voting for Bernie uh, who ended up voting or voting for Trump. And there were people who were independents who kind of liked them both as outsiders. Um, though I have to always add that there were only 10% of Bernie voters went and voted for Trump, where about 20% of Clinton voters in 2008 voted for Barack Obama. So the Bernie voters still were much more loyal uh, to the Democratic ticket than they get credit for. But the talk of Democratic socialism really is what kind of sets Bernie aside from the other candidates in the sense that, as I alluded to earlier, you know, he very much, even from people who are to his left, I see him give him credit for that Bernie is a candidate who says, like, it's about building a movement. It's, you know, his the hashtag was us, not me. And it's like, I am like only one part of something bigger um, and that we're going to have to come together and really have a political revolution. Like you asked me about earlier, Jordan, 
to really enact change. It's not about the, it's, it's definitely, that's definitely pushing against the, I'm with her, you know, it's a single actor kind of view of politics or the like, it's X turn, it's Y's chance to take whatever office. However, um, democratic socialism, as much as I would like it to be, is, you know, not a, a driving force in society. I mean, DSA, which I'm proud to be a member of, has uh, less than 60,000 members. Our revolution, which I'm even, I'm also proud to be a member of, is about a quarter of a million, um, and is not a democratic socialist organization. So, um, and there's definitely, like myself, probably some overlap of membership there. So you have people who um, identify with a political project, but definitely don't represent the majority of democratic primary voters, much less society. So it's, um, it's, it's going to be a force to be contended with. These are ideal, but there also has to be efforts to, you know, reach out to other progressives like the Warren Wing, um, who really do represent uh, lots of achievement. Like you have to give Senator Warren credit. You know, she created the CFPB, which is tremendous in creating financial accountability against corporate power. Um, so I think democratic socialism will be a real force in the 2020 elections, especially with you know, representatives Rashida Tlaib and representatives of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who can rep- hold it down in Congress. It's great that Bernie's not the only democratic socialist in the U.S. House uh, and Senate, but there's still a lot to be done, and still there's going to be a need to really build a mass multiracial progressive coalition to really take on Trump and take on the corporate Democrats. So while I'm happy that democratic socialism is playing a larger role, in the left of center politics, I think we have to recognize that it's still going to be a mass movement and a multi-tendency one that will really make progressive change. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And you mentioned the DSA. Within the DSA, there's a lot of debate about the worthwhileness of getting involved in electoral politics. There are, of course, a lot of people on the left who disdain electoral politics at large. How are you going about reaching out to them? What case do you make to those people? Yeah, it's interesting you bring this up. So I um, sat on a panel that my chapter, which is the Metro uh, DC Democratic Socialist America, had. Uh, at a general body meeting, which is a membership 
meeting a few weeks ago, and I was explaining uh, my position uh, that I'll re-articulate here, is that I think that, one, I think one of the strengths of DSA, the strength of our revolution, and any mass member organization is the ability to let people do what they want to do, uh, as long as it fits within the family. Um, of, and so if electoral politics is not your thing in DSA, there's tons to do. You never have to knock on a door for a candidate. You don't have to give money to a candidate. Um, you don't have to worry about any of that. I mean, that's great, but there is a reason that you still have to care. And I feel that like our revolution points out to, there's a triangle that we work off of, which like is groups at the center. Candidates on one side of the triangle, issues on the other, and then transforming the Democratic Party. And that these things all interact with one another. And that the social movement work that I keep alluding to, if people are doing uh, work that like affects housing especially, but also labor rights, anything, there's a political component to that with a big P. And that there are ways that politicians and elected officials through legislation through public policy, can make their lives easier, can make uh, citizens' lives harder, and, you know, beyond citizen, amusing citizens in the broadest sense of just people who live in society, not uh, whether you can vote or not. Um, and so I always try to reach out saying, like, there is a lot for us to do together, and I feel that there's a lot of people who are coming to DSA, especially uh, because, you know, candidates win, and there's really a role for the people not doing electoral politics to reach out to those people to give them alternative ways to get involved because campaigns are short term. They don't always happen. Sometimes, you know, someone has a really tough primary, but they win and then they won't have really a contested election again. So people need other things to do. So it's really about building a team that can work together that I don't, and I feel that the people who are doing, you know, other mass movement work uh, really have a lot to gain. Uh, by staying in DSA, even if they're not doing electoral politics, and then keeping the doors open for both sides to work together. And we've talked a lot about the Green New Deal. Could you give us an overview of what exactly that means in a democratic socialist framework and what's happening with it right now? One of the key things about democratic socialism is, and I talked about it uh, earlier in this interview, is really focusing on efforts to take profit and out of decision-making in a public policy way and not allowing market-based decisions to rule how we're going to approach <laughs> societal problems. Um, and really, it's hard to imagine right now, and I've really been convinced by the eco-socialists and DSA that it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine a world in which we're not going to have like a government-based, democratically, uh, coordinated solution to climate change. It's just too grave. It's, the stakes are much too high. There's too many stakeholders across the world. There has to be some collaborative effort that involves interventions against polluters. And that often the problem in the United States, which stems from our, you know, view of problems is that there's too much focus on individual choice, not the fact that it's corporate polluters who are the largest, you know, culprits. It's not people uh, forgetting to recycle uh, once a week. Um, and so we had once, so as socialists, we want to take people away from like, it's just about individual choices to it's about how do you figure out systemic 
solutions. And a huge thing that democratic socialists want to do, which is very critical in the New Deal, of the Green New Deal specifically, is like putting people to work productively. And productively doesn't doesn't mean in the capitalist sense of like making money, but that they're doing good for society with their labor. And so like the, uh, an essential component of the Green New Deal is the jobs guarantee that we are working to give people green jobs. There's a tremendous amount of uh, transition that needs to happen. And that's why the Green New Deal and also Medicare for All uh, talk about just transition, which is taking workers away in a very fair way, which is why it's called just transition from jobs that pollute or from jobs in Medicare for All that are, um, you know, just exist only because of the profit making mechanisms of Medicare for All to jobs that are going to clean the environment, to jobs that are actually uh, not-for-profit parts of our healthcare uh, system. And so that's a critical component. And I feel that what we're seeing, you know, with the day-to-day politics is that, like, you have, like, tons of excitement. I think they had, they had over 60 uh, members of Congress sign on and nine uh, senators, including Senator Sanders, to the Green New Deal. And then Nancy that the Speaker of the House totally dismisses. So what we've seen politically is that there's tons of excitement, but definitely efforts by the establishment to, uh, you know, burst the bubble <laughs> of the activist community. But I think ultimately that's going to backfire because I think right now there is tons of energy and excitement for social change and really in saving the world. <laughs> and um, no, without hyperbole. And I don't, th- and I think that only comments like that will only kind of keep motivating uh, activists to keep pushing politicians to really enact a climate change strategy uh, that is really socially just, economically just, and of course environmentally uh, focused. And in terms of pollution, I'm sure you know already that the U.S. military is the world's greatest polluter. A pretty common criticism of the left is that it has no real foreign policy vision or fails to break from the imperialist framework we see in both major U.S. parties, what is your foreign policy vision? I don't know how fair I think that criticism is. I um, am somebody whose father was a huge victim of U.S. imperialism. He was a Chilean student under uh, Allende and then was subsequently exiled um, you know, by the Pinochet regime that was incredibly supported by the United States when not have existed without Nixon's uh, uh, critical backing. Um, so I, I, it depends how you define the left. Um, I do think and would agree that there is sometimes uh, an inability to really articulate well that actually societal programs that we're advocating for um, don't exist because of, what we, of military spending, that there's actually tons of money <laughs> being spent on... Uh, propping up U.S. imperialism, propping, propping up American expansionism and economic interests um, at the expense of social programs. And I th- and that's often lost um, there. Uh, I am very much an internationalist. I am against U.S. interventions uh, like in Venezuela right now. I would deeply oppose uh, the U.S. Uh, trying to undermine uh, the democratic decisions of the Venezuelan people. And I think there should be a broker negotiation there uh, between the President Maduro um, and the opposition with other Latin American uh, governments facilitating that process, not the United States. And I think that the United States 
need to take a step back from being the world's uh, policeman um, and really having more of a concentration on our economic powers, but I'm not in isolationist either. I believe that there's roles uh, for the United States to do good things if it chooses to, uh, but that requires, you know, <laughs> different people in power than right now um, and a different foreign policy uh, that's much more based on solidarity than transactional views of the world, such as if you give me uh, oil or you have oil and I'm interested and I can give you some support. Um, and I think that's kind of been very clear with the Trump administration because they've been so much more brutally honest about what they're interested in. They're like very clear in Venezuela. It's about oil. Um, they've not, I mean, George W. Bush did a much better job of pretending it was about something else. Um, they are very clear about their views on, uh, developing countries being inferior and not worthwhile. Um, and really speaking to like the worst, uh, elements of American societies, you, who, uh, playing on xenophobia and racism there. And I, so I think we really need to counter that with not isolationism and, but with like building solidarity, building exchanges, supporting other countries without any desire for transaction. And I think like it's very, but it's hard to do that sometimes in a society, which I was remember being very shocked when I finally left. New York City to realize that there are very smart people who are very good who think the United States has only done good things abroad and are like don't believe you if you think that the United States has done anything remotely terrible and I think that there's a push against that right now that's being broader I think um, that you know there are a handful of representatives who have bravely spoken out against intervention in Venezuela which uh, including Senator Sanders uh, who might not have done so a few decades ago but um, it's not enough, and we need more of that. We need a, a genuine commitment and an anti-imperialist uh, left. And it's and that's where I think, going back to your question about democratic socialism, that's where you see us being, that's where the, the smallness of the movement is more reflective, that those kind of sentiments and foreign policy um, against bellicose nature of U.S. Uh, government um, aren't as strong as other, as other elements of the progressive movement. And much of the left's electoral strategy right now rests in primarying, primarying incumbent Democrats from the left. What are your thoughts on this strategy, and how do you think it's going to continue to manifest in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I've been a long proponent of, of, a, similar, of a similar strategy to this. Um, I uh, wrote in Jacobin with a friend, Will Emmons, in like 2010 or 11, I believe, um, an article uh, that was called like return to the countryside. And essentially what we were arguing then though, there was one central part of our thesis that was really wrong, uh, which I'll go into is that, you know, the social movement was incredibly small. I mean, it's small now, but it was like marginal then. Um, and that it didn't really make sense for us to contend electorally in any area that where there were substantial Republican voters. And that it made only sense in areas where there were Democrats won every time, where there was just a consensus that Republicans can never win. That would make sense either to run independent candidates or third party candidates from the left to challenge Democrats and really, or to primary Democrats there. And so I've long think this is the best road because I think, uh, history has shown that class trouble runs through the Democratic Party. 
not outside of it, and that you really have to really fight the corporate interests in the party with a labor uh, and progressive agenda. Um, I, what was wrong about our thesis then was that we felt that uh, socialists shouldn't pay attention to presidential politics, which I think the Sanders campaign really disproved us there because it really elevated the, the talk about not only socialism, but just what is possible uh, politically and legislatively in ways that no other campaign could do because of just the platform that uh, a Democratic presidential candidate that is viewed seriously is given. Um, so it's a part, and I think the strategy is bearing fruit. Um, you know, I mean, ignoring the, the um, most obvious cases that people know about in Congress, you know, you see uh, Bernie Kratz, Democratic Socialists and Progressives, like unseating or winning open seats across the country and really pushing change. And I was just talking to uh, Gabe Severo today, who is an Our Revolution DSA nationally backed candidate um, in uh, Maryland, in Montgomery County area, uh, who is uh, putting out a universal basic income bill uh, that's going to be based on the uh, revenue that could potentially be generated by the legalization of marijuana. I've seen another candidate also backed by both uh, organizations, Vaughn Stewart, and that Maryland House is putting out social housing bills, um, which are, you know, to create public housing that just goes beyond public, the idea of public housing that really has a social good. Um, and these are things that just wouldn't have been possible two years ago and are really and are happening because these folks are contesting in Democratic primaries. Um, and are really changing the way people look at what's politically possible, what issues they're talking about. So I think, I mean, it's actually happened much faster than I thought. And I've talked about this with a lot of folks because in 2017, we were like supporting a few candidates who were getting blown out two to one. And then we were winning races the next year. And I didn't think it was going to happen that quickly. So um, it's really, really exciting time for, you know, Bernie Kratz, and Dem Social Democrats, Democratic Socialists. You know, and it's really the time for us to challenge because this is the real political opening has happened now. And what can our listeners do to get involved in the revolution and take action right now? Um, there's a lot to do. I would encourage all of your listeners to go to ourrevolution.com uh, and look to be sign up to be a member. A member doesn't cost anything, though. If you do make a donation, which I'd also encourage uh, folks to do, uh, we you will like then start getting more information. Like our revolution does a ton of work uh, around texting and phone banking, uh, not only for candidates, though it's really important, but for social issues such as Medicare for all. Um, and also we're going to be doing a lot more work, you know, as the 2020 election gets more serious about uh, issue, around issues around the presidential race. Um, and I really encourage folks to get involved with groups like our revolution because there's, we're always looking for, you know, volunteers and there's definitely things we can do to plug you in to really advance progressive politics in this country and where can folks find you online oh my twitter you can find me on my twitter account uh l underscore gringo uh d-u-h-a-l uh so l as an e-l uh and that's the best way to reach me or you can email me <laughs> if you're which i'm actually incredibly good at responding to uh because of long subway rides uh david at our revolution Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today, and we hope to catch up in the future to hear about all the progress. All right, thank you, Jordan. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I appreciate you teaching me a thing or two. Awesome.
And lastly, to our listeners, to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics Podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, follow us on social media, and tune in to the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.